You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. We're going to discuss the Form 700. My name is Devin Lincoln, and I'm an attorney in Lozano Smith's Monterey office. Today, I'm joined by Tom Gautier. Tom, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, Devin. Thanks for having me on. I work out of Lozano Smith's Sacramento office, and I spend a lot of time working with school districts and public agencies. And I also find myself doing a lot of work related to conflicts of interest in California and advising uh, public agencies and public officials on their conflict of interest obligations. Great. And that's exactly why we have you here today. Um, So let's get started. It's that time of year again. You fill out confusing forms. You search through drawers for financial documents. You wonder where to get help. No, I'm not talking about tax season, although that's going on right now, too. Coming up on April 2nd of this year is the deadline for most people, most public servants in California, to file Form 700, which is also known as the Statement of Economic Interests. Tom's going to help take some of the mystery and confusion out of this annual ritual, I hope. So, Tom, first, can you tell us where the Form 700 comes from and why are public officials in California filing it? Uh, Sure, Devin. Uh, The Form 700 comes from California Political Reform Act. It's the most important ethics and transparency law in California that applies to public officials. And it applies across a broad range of areas. Uh, This is the law that requires campaigns and political action committees to file campaign statements. It requires lobbyists to register and disclose their activities. And it's also the source of the rule that says a public official can't act if it's going to affect their own financial interests. So as a part of this, the the Political Reform Act requires every public agency to have a conflict of interest code. And that conflict of interest code lists all of the job positions where those positions might be able to affect their own financial interests. So, for example, um, a chief business official or a school superintendent um, might have the ability to guide contracting decisions or facilities decisions, and they may have the ability to affect their own financial interests. So, in addition to that conflict of interest code, that's where Form 700 comes in. It shines a light on all of this and attempts to give some transparency to what public officials are doing and whether uh, what they're doing can, has an effect on their own financial interests. Most of us are familiar with the annual statement that is usually due on April 1st, although this year in 2019, it's due on April 2nd. Are there other kinds of statements and when are they filed, Tom? Yes, you're right, Devin. There's four different kinds. Right now, most of us are working on the annual statement, which covers calendar year 2018, and that's due on April 1 or or in this year, this year it's due April 2. Uh, People also file a Form 700 when they run for elected office. So you file one when you start your campaign. You also file one when you take a new job or or get seated as an, as an elected official. So that's called an assuming office statement. So that's when you first take a job or, or position. And then you file another kind of statement called leaving office when, when you leave an office. Um, but for most of us, the, the annual ritual is what we see most frequently is filing the annual statement. Now, I know this can change from agency to agency, but Generally speaking, who needs to file a Form 700? Each public agency decides that for themselves. And the rule is that the conflict of interest code should list the positions where someone is 
able to foreseeably affect their own financial interests. And that's typically someone who has contracting authority or uh, authority over real property or facilities. So typically you will see um, any elected officials, you'll see the CEO, whether it's a superintendent or a city manager, and you'll see uh, people at the, the uh, department head level as well. And sometimes you'll see even a little bit farther down, um, down to the director or coordinator level. And again, it's de- each agency has to figure out which positions should be filing and make that judgment call for themselves. But for the filers, the important thing to know is you need to look at the conflict of interest code and see whether you are listed. And most agencies are quite diligent about sending out reminders so that people know that it's time to file and that they are a filer. Now, once you've filled out your form, what happens to it? Um, what happens if you fill it out incorrectly? Well, you can always amend. If you make an error, I always tell people, you can amend uh, the form anytime you want, and that's very common to do, so there's no harm in amending it. Where it's filed uh, ranges. The vast majority of these statements are filed directly with your local agency, and they keep the copies right on site. So you always have a, a filing officer uh, uh, that is responsible for hanging on to the copies. Um, sometimes the school board or city council statements, you know, the member, the school board members or the city council members, their statements would be sent off to the county board of supervisors who keeps them. But the vast majority are kept locally on site. And then occasionally for some agencies that overlap multiple counties, then the Fair Political Practices Commission itself, uh, which is the body that oversees the Political Reform Act, then they keep them. So does it make a difference if any errors are unintentional? And what if a public official intentionally omits inf- information from the Form 700? What happens then? Well, there can be either civil fines or, in very rare cases of intentional misstatements or omissions, there can be criminal consequences. But the most likely thing that does happen occasionally is um, someone will file a complaint against a public official and there'll be a civil fine. And yes, it does matter as to uh, what the type of infraction was. Uh, People that file a form late or make unintentional errors, we commonly see modest fines in the low hundreds of dollars range. And again, that doesn't happen all that often, but it does happen when people file a complaint. And if it is a more serious error or omission, we see larger civil fines. The Political Reform Act allows fines of up to $5,000 per violation. So it is important to be timely and to be accurate on the Form 700. Okay, now we know what's at stake for getting this right. So, Tom, I'd like to now pretend that I'm a governing board member or a city council member, and I've come to you, Tom, for guidance on how to fill out my form. When I'm ready to fill out the Form 700, where do I start? First and foremost, you have to get a copy of your conflict of interest code. And for a lot of public agencies, it's just one policy that is posted on your website or available at your district office or or headquarters. Uh, For schools, if you use the um, sample policy system of the California School Boards Association, it's board bylaw 9270. And the important thing is to just take a look at it and look at the scope of disclosure. Generally, the more responsibility you have, the broader your scope of disclosure will be. At the um, level of elected officials and superintendents and CBOs and city managers and things like that, typically those people are going to be filing full disclosure, which means you file all of your financial interests, all gifts, all income, all business positions. But most of us, and this is really important to focus on when you're filling out your Form 700, most of us file a limited scope of disclosure and it's typically related to your financial interests. So for example, 
a um, school official might very well file a um, Form 700 that just lists the investments or income from contractors or or other vendors that are engaged in the type of services or providing the type of goods that your agency uses. So for example, if I'm a, um, an assistant superintendent for a school district, I might be disclosing if I have investments in a telecommunications company or if I own part of a construction company because obviously the school district would use those kinds of services or goods. Okay. So the Form 700, and we will have a link to it attached to in our show notes. Uh, it, it, the key part, as I understand it, of the Form 700 is filling out the schedules. If you're not familiar with the Form 700, it has six attached schedules that need to be completed. Those are A1, A2, and then B through E. So that's how you get to six. So I want to start with Schedule A1, Investments in Stocks and Bonds. What do I need to know to fill this out correctly, Tom? Good question, Devin, and I'll just make a couple of brief comments about each schedule. The first thing to keep in mind for all the schedules is that the scope of disclosure is really for income or real property or, or, or um, business investments that are either located in or doing business in the jurisdiction. So when we look at uh, Schedule A1, this is where you're going to be reporting stocks and bonds, um, interests in a, a partnership or something like that of less than 10%, meaning your ownership is less than 10%. So you would be reporting, for example, if you had stocks uh, in a telecommunications company and your agency, almost every agency uses telecommunications services. So that's a very common thing that you might report. Um, again, keep in mind, it's only if the company is doing business in the, the jurisdiction. So if you happen to have an investment in a company that is way on the other side of the country and doesn't do any business in this area, it wouldn't be disclosed. The only other thing to remember about this schedule is that you don't have to report your entire financial life. Uh, so you're not going to be reporting diversified mutual funds, bank accounts, retirement accounts, pensions, things like that. Okay, so now how about Schedule A2, investments? Do I approach that differently from Schedule A1? Just a little bit. Schedule A2 is if you own 10% or more of, of a business or investment. And this is where people are mostly putting down things like interest in family businesses or businesses that they own a major share in. And the difference here is sometimes you have to report um, your clients. So if you get uh, a large portion of your income uh, from a particular source, then you can see on the schedule you might have to be listing some of your some of your clients or customers or sources of income. Um, another thing to keep in mind here is that you're going to be reporting your spouse's business interests as well. And that's a general rule throughout Form 700 is if you're married in California, you uh, have an obligation to report your spouse's business interests as well. Okay, I'm going to move right along to Schedule B, Real Property. If I own a house in the jurisdiction of the agency I represent, do I have to report it here? Um, part of the good news here is that you don't report your personal residence on, on Schedule B. And that's a comfort to people who value their personal privacy. So if it's just your personal residence, you're not going to be disclosing it. But if you have an interest in a um, rental home or other business property, then it would be disclosed here on, on Schedule B. Again, keep in mind, uh, you only disclose real property if it's uh, in the jurisdiction. So if you, if you own uh, real estate on the other side of the country, it's not disclosed. Great. Okay. Now, again, if I'm an elected board member, but my day job is working as, say, a real estate agent, how do I fill out Schedule C? 
income, loans, and business positions. Schedule C is where most people report their income. Um, if you've received $500 or more in the reporting period from any source, then you're going to be putting it in here. So the income you receive from your real estate brokerage job would be reported here, um, consulting income, wages, things like that. There's a big exception here, which a lot of people don't, don't see, and you can find a lot of this great information in the instructions, but when you look in the instructions, you'll see you don't have to report salary from a government agency, and that's just a big exception. So you won't be reporting uh, any you know, salary income from a government agency. Um, again, you would be reporting a spouse's income. And um, finally, in addition to jobs where you actually get a wage, if you have a business position, such as being an officer or director of a company, then it should be uh, put on the schedule as well. Uh, the good news here is that you don't have to report positions in charities. So it's only for-profit companies. All right. Now, one thing I know is that gifts is a very tricky area when it comes to public service. So what do I need to know to fill out Schedule D, gifts? The thing to keep in mind with gifts is that you have to report a gift if the donor is someone that is a person or an entity that you would normally report income from. So, for example, if I have a, an aunt or an uncle in Ohio and they give me a gift, well, if they're not a, a source of income or something that I would normally be putting on Form 700, I'm not reporting it. Again, it can be really complicated, but just keep in mind, you generally don't report all gifts. It's only gifts from sources that w you would normally put on your Form 700. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that there's a lot of exceptions to the definition of a gift. Um, gifts from family, gifts from friends that are, that are you know, the usual types of gifts that people give in a friendly relationship aren't reported. And the last thing to keep in mind with gifts is there's thresholds. So on Form 700, you only report gifts if they total up to $50 per source per calendar year. Below that amount, they're not reported. So there's a $50 reporting threshold. And then the gift limit where, where you can't accept gifts above a certain amount is $500 per calendar year. So you're going to be reporting any gifts anywhere between $50 and $500. And you shouldn't be going over the $500 limit because that would be a violation of the Political Reform Act. Now, travel is recorded separately, right? From gifts, um, you report that on Schedule E, right? What do I need to know about that? Yes, the, the last part of the form is about travel. And public officials should always assume that any travel payments they get are going to be gifts. And again, there's lots of exceptions. If my employer provides travel, that's not a gift or income. That's just part of doing business. But if someone gives you travel, uh, such as lodging or airfare or meals, um, then assume that it's going to be a gift. Now there can, again, there's more exceptions that would apply here. So for example, if I'm a board member of a charity or I work for an association such as AXA, the Association of California School Administrators, if I'm providing a valuable service like serving as a board member in return for that, then it may not be a gift. Um, or it may be reported, um, but you know there's no limits. So there's going to be a lot of intricacies here. And I think the watchword for our listeners is just Start with the assumption that travel is going to be a gift. It might be income to you, or it might be not reportable at all if it comes from your employer. What about if I'm traveling to give a speech? Is there a different rule there? <clears throat> That's another common exception. 
and uh, it's allowable if you are giving a speech for a uh, either a company or a charity to provide travel and lodging that's directly related to that speech. And that's typically travel in California and same day or day before and day after. Um, again, it's impossible to generalize here, um, so you want to check the rules because sometimes you report travel uh, even, even if it's not considered a gift. So keep in mind um, there can be a lot of potential outcomes here. It could be not reportable, it could be reported, um, or it could be something that is subject to a limit and you have to watch out how much you're getting from a particular source. Okay, phew, I did it. I filled out my Form 700. Um, thank you, Tom. Um, now, if I don't have my agency's lawyer on speed dial, how do I find help? Um, where should I go for more information? There's lots of help out there, and sometimes the Form 700 can, can feel like you have to do your own taxes, but there's no accountant to help you. But there are, there are a lot of resources. Um, it's also important to remember you, you usually have a very knowledgeable person or, or one or two people in your agency, so start with the filing officer and asking questions. I think the, the most important source of information is the, the form's instructions itself. If you print out all of Form 700, there's instructions for, for each schedule, and they answer the most commonly asked questions. The uh, Fair Political Practices Commission website also has a reference pamphlet, which is pretty good. Um, and finally, if you're stumped, you can actually call or email the Fair Political Practices Commission for advice, and they have staff that are on site. Um, most business days in the morning to answer phone calls, and they will also respond to, to emails. And they're pretty knowledgeable and, and pretty helpful. Um, I think the important um, thing to keep in mind here is that you provide them all relevant information and that if you're not understanding what question you ask, to make sure that, that you talk to them at length to make sure they understand what, what question you're asking. When should I check with legal counsel? In rare cases, I think it can be a good idea for a public official to uh, seek their own legal counsel. Um, that's because even if you get uh, advice from your in internal agency staff or uh, the agency's attorneys, that um, is not going to insulate you from potential liability for making mistakes. So you either want to possibly get formal advice from the Fair Political Practices Commission or get formal advice from your own attorney. Um, and I find that to be somewhat rare, thankfully, but it does happen once in a while. So keep it in mind as a possibility. So, Tom, in closing, I want to bring this back to why public servants go through this all every year. Um, why is it important to get your Form 700 right? Um, I know that there's some self-preservation involved, but it's more than that, right? This document plays an important part in ensuring public confidence in government. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. This is an important transparency law, and it's regularly enforced by the Fair Political Practices Commission. I think... It's important to get Form 700 right, or as, as right as you possibly can, and it's also important to avoid participating in a government decision if it's going to affect your financial interests. That's really the whole purpose of this form, is to shine a light on what public officials are doing so people can see if they have financial conflicts of interest. So if an issue comes up and it, it involves one of your financial interests, like you know a your personal house or... Uh, a business owned by your spouse or, you know, a company that you have an investment in. If those things come up, it's always good to stop and ask questions because that's really the, the heart of the Political Reform Act is making sure that people uh, don't act uh, to affect their own personal financial interests. Okay. So, well, thank you so much for all of your assistance today, Tom. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. 
We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss an episode. Thank you. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.